suffering from the cold coming down from the glacial Arctic, bringing us back to sub-zero temperatures in Montana and the Dakotas, reaching down into Iowa, down into Ohio, where you can't even get from your home to your car because you are snowed in and there's no moving from your domicile out to wherever your place of work may be, wherever your learned educational center is waiting in snow-drenched trees with no availability and no power and no accessibility. Welcome. I'm glad you have a beacon of warmth and light known as the Traumedy Podcast. It's Uncle Ken bringing you another episode. I'm entitling the the Kabul Chronicles, the, the stories of me being in Afghanistan back in 2008. I want to thank you for staying and warming your feet and your cockles by the fire of the podcast. And I appreciate each and every one of you. And how many people you've been telling about, telling telling them, hey, listen up, this guy's got something to say. And boy, is he a blowhard, but he's a beautiful blowhard. And uh, boy, I'll blow it, man. I'll tell you, uh, I'm about to wax as, as, as melancholically and uh, as maudlin as I can, remembering some old days back across the continents, back into war-torn Afghanistan. I am very excited that you've joined me here and I hope that I can keep you entertained while you're snowbound and dealing with cabin fever. Can you imagine cabin fever back in the day when frontiersmen were literally stuck inside their cabins for weeks and months and nowhere to go? Where are you going to go? Where where are you going to see? What are you going to do? I mean, then you realize why a deck of cards was so important and why it was it was so amazing to have somebody that could sing or could have a book and you could read Frost. Yeah, pun intended. But you could you could seek refuge in some kind of entertainment other than having to keep your mind sane on those cold winter days where you're eating canned foods and just praying that something bad doesn't come to tear down your home or some ill-begotten stranger comes knocking on your door. <laughs> I love that. I, I, and as funny as it is to us, that was a, that's a real part of life for people and, 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 Right now, that's probably happening in some places. We got it bad in California. Let me tell you, uh, we're experiencing a cold. We're experiencing a cold snap at this point. I think it's about forty-eight degrees outside. I'm not kidding. Almost enough for you to have to put on a jacket over your t-shirt. Uh, and and the people driving on the freeways are unabashedly afraid to exceed the 50 mile an hour speed limit in fears that they'll skid out and overturn their vehicles and cause a multi-casualty incident. It's real. Uh, The people of California, we are in the grips of global warming, which is bringing global cooling, which we know is due to all sorts of human interaction. And if we don't watch out and watch our sixes, and our 12s, uh, we just might find ourselves headlong, face first, into sub-zero oceans. It's a terrifying thing to think about, but at least we have a little solace from that. And that's going to be the podcast today. So I want to just let you clear your mind, put a nice log on the fire, and appreciate the fact that you're out of the cold and you're into the illumination of light and knowledge. 
Remember, you can find us on TrailMoneyPodcast.com. With all that stuff. You know about that. That's why you're here. And everybody that you've told about it, that's why you're here. So thank you for gathering by the nouveau fireside chats. And I get a chance to converse with you and really uh, try and be as sophomorically intelligent as I can be to talk about a country that I knew nothing about until I showed up there and was grossly underprepared to deal with and came out um, reeling, but on my feet, like the country itself. If you haven't listened to the first episode about this, I think it was called The Fear, and it was the it was just about that, the idea that I went over to Afghanistan as a medevac paramedic, thinking that I would be heroic and thinking that I would make such a difference and that I would face my fears and also have firsthand accounts of what was happening in war-torn Afghanistan. That was a great mission statement up until the night before I flew out when in the midst of utter panic I realized that I was going over into a world where people wanted me dead and really probably couldn't care less other than to trip me up possibly kill me and take any money that they could from me if needed but otherwise they were busy dealing with their own lives. And I realized that fear is a very tangible thing. And it is debilitating. But nevertheless, the only way to deal with it is to push forward. So if if you haven't listened to that, get into it. Please enjoy it. Uh, again, I'm going to say this and, and preface these chronicles in this way. I am no expert. I am not a scholar in Afghanistan, Afghani culture. I'm only relaying things that were told to me through people that had learned it through other people. And I may mispronounce many things. I may have the story wrong on both sides of the issues. But these are the ways that it was told to me as I remember it when it happened 11 years ago this month. That being said, I flew into Afghanistan in January of 2008. And I didn't realize that it was going to be not blisteringly hot, but frigid, cold, and uh, bone-gnawingly desolate so you didn't i didn't know you know and for many of you who haven't gone to afghanistan or studied afghani culture or known anything about it as much to the extent that i was that person you'd think that it was another desert like iraq like the other front of the conflict i had no idea that it sat at the base of the himalayas that this was what the people of the 60s and 70s called the base of the Shangri-La Trail, which was this this travel that a lot of hippies and, and, you know, uh, wooey people would take to go to Nepal along the way. They would go into, you know, Afghanistan, land there, meet the people there, and smoke a little hash do a little opium, make their way up into the promised land, up into the, the world, the land of the Dalai Lama, and be enlightened along the way. They may have taken the the Kabuli light rail transit, which was this up-and-coming light rail system that they had, because back then, you know, Kabul was this real nouveau cultural hub. It was a gorgeous artisanal city before the dark times before the before the empires came through and demolished it both both east to west 
I, I think about that a lot because uh, this city had has seen the wars, has been through them. And I showed up in the midst of the second one, or maybe even the third, if you want to count the Taliban as the uh, a, a second epoch in their culture. And again, I don't know really much about it. I know that Alexander the Great went through there. And there's a base there that I could drive my minivan up to, which we had created an ambulance out of. You could literally drive onto Alexander's prehistoric, well, not prehistoric, but BC fortress and get out and look at the ruins that still exist today. At least they did in 2008. I knew that the Russians had come through before and demolished the city and in their retreat had dropped millions of landmines off their carriers into the hills and mountains as a last-ditch middle finger to the people there that fought strongly back against them with whatever weaponry was provided to them through a third-party USA source. But I wasn't prepared to see the kind of world that I saw there. And I for sure was not prepared for the cold that I would experience there. I was thinking about the coldest I've ever been. And, and when I really realized, you know, Jesus, this is, this is cold. This is unmanageable. And, 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 and a cold where there's no warmth in sight. And uh, the first time I think I ever felt that, well, I, there was one time I remember sliding, I must have been three or four, uh, sliding, taking a pool slide down into a pool in the middle of winter and the cold hitting me. But that was just a, a shock cold. But I remember hitting the water and my eyes stared into that murky, myopic underwater image where everything's blurry but it was just so blue and freezing that I think I surfaced and I was still in disbelief about how cold it was and I remember a minute later my dad just scooping me up and taking me out and everyone was laughing because they thought he didn't know but I guess I must have been so brazen that I said well I want to get in and I must have fought them over and over and over again to go into that pool that they went okay take the slide down and of course, as I hit the water, I realized uh, my mistake, my absolute hubris to think that uh, this would be fine for me to enjoy this. Uh, as I flew into Afghanistan that morning, after getting visas and, and getting on that plane where, you know, there was water running down the aisles and it was, uh, it was a commercial flight, but we were flying in to the, the hub of, of that country, which uh, I assumed would be just like any other bustling metropolis for, for a capital city. We flew into uh, one, of the, one of their tarmacs, and as I opened, or the door was opened and I, and I got out of that door, uh, the cold hit me like I've, I've never experienced before. There's another time that I felt cold uh, or multiple times. And that was during high school when it would start to become late fall, early winter. I'd be playing football at this point. And, and you'd, you know, if your team was winning, you'd go all the way up into the early months or early weeks of December. But you had to practice all through those months and weeks and days. And as it became November, late October, November, and then late November, past Thanksgiving, past the fun of the leaves turning. You'd be out on that field and you'd see that sun and it would be the last little warmth, that little flare that was giving you something. You'd be, you'd be running drills and, and trying, you know, doing plays. And you knew as that sun was going down, you'd be practicing your two-minute drill or you'd be later after that doing conditioning. But as it started to go down, the sweat that had accumulated over the course of that 
practice would start to do up and would start to freeze you. And, and it was hard because most of us didn't wear undergarments. See, so we didn't have long sleeve shirts on or something. We maybe we try later, but, but it's all sopped in sweat. And so as that last little, little, little tiny flash of light would start sinking down, you'd start to feel the breeze coming in from the south. And it would run across that field, boy. And, and suddenly you start shaking and you start realizing how cold you are and your fingers start to get numb red, numb white. And then you'd be doing that transfer of your hands from underneath your armpits down into your crotch and you're rubbing them together and you'd move them back to your armpits, back to your crotch. And you'd be just bouncing on the sidelines or you'd be just bouncing between the, the, the scrimmage line and your play. Just going, come on, man, call the call. Let's get out there. Let's get, do this. Let's do this. Things would start getting colder and the light would start to turn to that melancholy blue, you know, and as evening really started to settle in, you'd really start to feel it creep into your bones and you'd start to just hopefully let's finish you start praying you start saying things like let's just get to conditioning let's get to Burma Rose man let's get to Lover's Lane ladies come on we got to do some you know we got to start running the hill or just do some wind sprints boy because I'm not going to be able to take this any longer and you just hope that if you stayed active enough your your internal temperature would warm you up and then after that, after running 10 wind sprints across 100 yards, and you'd be screaming, come on, you guys, let's go, you know, losing your skull about this, uh, then you'd have to take a knee. And the coaches, who were all wearing windbreakers, knew, they must have known how cold we were. And they'd sit, they'd stand in front of us, and they'd make us take a knee and they talk about that practice and what was supposed to happen in three days or the day ne the next day. And you'd start to get those shivers that would start running through your body and you'd start to shiver and you're just trying to push it away. You'd start to flex, but you had to stop and sit and listen to them. And when they break, you'd get up and already you're hearing spring pops in your knees and your elbows and you're running back to the, to the, locker room so you can at least take off the stuff you had we we had showers but by the time we went through high school I think that taking showers at that period of time was already not the average thing so they had already they had already gotten rid of the hot water of um, the hot water uh, choice in the in the showers so forget about going and jumping into a shower you had to just run in Take your stuff off, throw it in the drying room, and maybe just stand in that drying room, rubbing yourself, trying to warm up, thinking, Jesus, that sucked. That sucked. Okay, did I learn anything from that? On Basically, from that practice, well, I learned what cold is. And one time, uh, my friend was telling me he was, he was out there, and Coach True, who was a, also a chemistry teacher, he walked by him and he said, uh, gentlemen, how are we? And they said, we're feeling pretty cold, coach. And he goes, well, uh, I was cold once. Uh, that was in the Army. And he had did an about face and sauntered off. And they said, uh, we felt demoralized. And we never complained of being cold again, no matter how cold we got. And I kept that in mind throughout that whole deployment while I was there because I kept thinking if coach true were here what would he say about this if coach true were walking through that fuselage door down the stairs onto the tarmac and was hit with the 20 below Fahrenheit temperature that I was hit with where it felt like momentarily the the the, the fluid in my eyes started to crust over before I blinked myself into a defensive responsiveness uh, 
what would he say about this? Was this the cold he was talking about? And then what war was he talking about? Was it Korea? It must have been Korea because it definitely wasn't Vietnam. And these, you know, these thoughts start running through my head. I had a jacket on and the fingers of coldness start creeping into your jacket. It's so cold. The saliva on the sides of your lips starts to tingle and freeze. And my buddy, Darren, the Australian, I might spit, mate. And I go, what do you go? Take, take, spit it. And I spat and the, the crystals, they froze into this kind of, you know, ice mist into the air. He goes, it's, it's cold, eh? I went, Jesus, what is happening here? I thought we were, I thought I was going to, you know, oh, a desert. No, man, we're, at the, we're, we're, Right in the base of one of the coldest regions in the world. And we filed up from Dubai. We dressed in undergarments and, and you know, uh, cargo pants and then our uniform and so forth. Thank God he told me to do that because I didn't realize what kind of weather we'd be dealing with. And uh, walked from the tarmac back to the airport where there's a MIG as a monument that's poised to fly off right at the roundabout of this airport, star and all. We had our, we had our um, interpreter there. His name was, uh, well, I'll just say Shaveen. It's not that, but it's close enough. I, I doubt there will be any issue about bringing it up. But again, uh, it was a war zone and I don't want to get anybody busted and I don't want to get anybody killed even today. I'm not that popular that they're going to be listening for any information uh, that's going to be divulged here. But Shaveen, uh, I'm thinking about you and I hope you're okay. Uh, anyway, he waited for us and as he found us, he said, come on, I have the car over here. I don't know the voice. I can't even do that. I'm not going to do it. He's not, he's not. Indian. He was he was Pashtun, which made him an outsider to begin with. But he led us over to the uh, the minivan. We had a Toyota minivan that later I kind of was the lead to get converted into an ambulance. And I called it well, they call it a soft vehicle, meaning it didn't have armor. So it was a it was a it was just a minivan that you, we tore the back carpets and seats out of and 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 hired somebody to build as a, a, an ambulance uh, body into and we got into that thing and he, it was i think it was a diesel i think most everything over there is diesel because i think gas freezes or maybe just diesels more readily available in 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 the other countries in other countries it's definitely a more durable uh vehicle but he went in there, you know, and he, and he kicks over the, the diesel engine and he turns the heat on and I don't think it warmed up the entire trip from the airport over to our, boy, you call it a base? You can't call it a base. It was a house. It was a house in the middle of Nowheresville. And that entire trip, I had my hands over the radiator, the, the heating vents, just trying to warm myself up. And there's ice still crusted around the windshield. And, and as I'm driving through and looking at this little, this window where it looks like maybe you'd see in a, in a, in a Christmas story where the, the, the wreathed windows have ice and you're looking out at this, you know, beautiful city of London in, in Christmas. Instead, you're looking at a war zone where there are open fires burning just to keep warm. Not like they were recently shelled, but like there's fires where people are warming themselves in fire pits near, you know, waste buckets. There are uh, kerosene heaters going in the open markets where people are buying things and cooking. And there are these, you know, um, all these broken down cars and, I mean, Toyota Hiluxes are everywhere over there. Toyota has got the market cornered on the pickup truck and the minivans. But then as you're driving through, you're seeing Toyota, Toyota, Toyota. And then, then you start seeing these cars that are like from 
out of a, uh, out of an alternate alternate dimension, like like well, I mean, I've heard of Yugos, you know, they're a Yugoslavian car, but then I'm driving, I'm seeing like things that say like Kamaz, and I think Nami, you know, these like Russian-made cars that are almost a Volvo, almost a Citroen, and almost a Buick, but they're like this weird combination that are rusting and they're, you know, or their their engine exhaust is pluming around them and you're just, well, what the hell is that? And then next to it is a guy on a cart being pulled by a donkey and he's going by a fire, a tire fire that's burning. All the while there's slush on the ground, this muddy slush that you're, driving in, half sliding, making your way around dirt roads. I didn't know that there are countries, obviously now, that there are capital cities that for the most part are dirt roads. For the most part, don't have electricity. For the most part, don't have arterials or stoplights you just drive according to the person next to you and the car that's in front of you and the car and the intersection that you're coming up to we drove our way through the cities of streets of of kabul that way and again i say kabul because uh, the people i i worked with predominantly were european or they were australian and it, it was all kabul we called it kabul i know that people say kabul but I, I was way away from the uh, U.S. military. I, I, was, I wasn't even within mortar range of a military base, um, uh, of any military base, let alone the U.S., who had like basically the coolest fraternity in the city. You know, if you, if you looked at it in terms of a college city, they had the kick-ass fraternity house. And then followed by the green zone around that, which largely was an area that was run or was uh, where the um, private security forces operated. And in that area, it was in that city, it was uh, the area where all of the the green zone consisted of this housing area where it was mansions and estates that at one time were owned by Taliban officials that ran the drug traffic trade in that city. And so they had all the upscale places. They were already ready-made with uh, guard shacks and large uh, fencing around them for security purposes. So that when we came in, or when forces came in, and they skedaddled, they already had a man-made base. I mean, it was already built for those same kind of ideas. Be able to have a high point, be able to see 360 around you and be able to protect yourself should anyone try to invade. In that case before, it would be other drug lords. Uh, and for, uh, for people there living now in that green zone, it was for any Taliban to try and infiltrate. We were about six miles away from there, living in the heart of suburbia. In a little area, I think, uh, well, Chari now is how everybody said it. Chari now. It's if I know we're in Chari now. Um, but it was it was about, yeah, six miles away from any of the bases and any of the anything. And we were in this little, little two-story concrete job that had next to it, inside the compound, if you want to call it that, it had some mud huts that we were transferring or, or, or excuse me, that we were uh, turning into um, civilian um, hospitals or just little care clinics so that we could bring people in if they had any issues, if they had been hurt by, you know, IED blasts or they were sick or they needed inoculations or whatever it needed to be. We wanted to turn this into an operational clinic. So we had that going for us, and, and, um, and we didn't have, we had some walls around it, some, some six-foot concrete walls, but we didn't have razor wire. We didn't um, have an, any, any real protection from an assault. 
um, which I found out as we pulled into the place, not knowing what I was expecting, uh, not expecting what I was seeing, um, not believing my own eyes as I just pulled into this little spot where the guy gets out, cracks a padlock, pulls us into a little area where there's a little, uh, little broken down car outside and two story home with a little shacks next to it. I, I would say oh, maybe an eighth of an acre large. Now that's a lot compared to Afghanistan real estate. If you take a look at the pictures I'm putting up, you're going to see what the average home looks like that's built up against the mountain ranges surrounding the capital city of Kabul. Where we lived, it was an upscale joint. Um, yes, there were dirt roads. Yes, there were open sewers. The people that lived where we were living, though, were doctors, dentists, <clears throat> government dignitaries uh, down the block. I knew it was, a, we, he said, that, you know it's a government dignitary because they paved the road 50 feet from his driveway until 50 feet beyond his driveway. So they hooked him up with a little bit of asphalt. But beyond that, um, we were in an upscale place. Beyond that, it's dirt roads and open sewers and you know, God be with you or Allah be with you on your quest. <clears throat> So as, as we pulled into this place, the cold still gripping me as I would try and wipe the windshield and I'd get that greasy kind of underwater look as I'm looking out into the, the city that I'm now going to call my home for a few months. Um, waves of fear start to dissipate because waves of, of cold are infiltrating and that's taking precedence in my consciousness. So God bless the cold. Another good thing about the cold is that it provides some some assurance or at least some, if not assurances, then some safeguards. One is that the cold is going to have killed off most of the parasitic insects that are going to be and arachnids that are inside your houses. So the ants, the mosquitoes, the bed bugs, they're not around. You still got to check for bed bugs, but our house was fairly clean. And so we don't have to worry about the swarms of insects that would show up come May, June, July, and August. So we were relatively safe from that kind of issue. Another thing is that if you look at Afghanistan, it's at the base of the Himalayas, as I've said. If you look at Kabul, it's really a basin in between a circular mountain range, a great mountain range, but in, you're still sitting in the basin of this. And all of that, all that fire, all of that dust from the streets, that's all collecting in this kind of smog haze that floats about 300 feet above, about 300 yards above the city. I don't know. We could see from our windows, we'd look out across the city and you could see this brownish, just, you know, funk in the air. A lot of that was not just burning diesel and kerosene um, and tires. It was feces. See, because in the city, um, most of the sewers were open sewers. We had just, we had great ditches a little bit deeper than your average sidewalk ditch where when eventually whatever you, you did in your home would empty out to those sewers and run through the city. Through the course of warming, that would aerosolize and get into the air. And when it got warm, you would begin to breathe a lot more of that. Now, a person that I spoke to that said, who got me the job or, or referred me to the people, he said, now, just be aware <clears throat> that when you get over there, 
you're going to get a respiratory infection and you're going to feel really depressed and sick. And that's due to the fact that you're breathing the air that has so much carcinogen. You know, oh, I think about that now. And that might be some of the, some of the reason for this thing. Um, you're dealing with so many carcinogens. And um, there it is. What are we talking about? Um, you're dealing with so many carcinogens and so many things there that um, are, are in the air. You're going to be breathing all of this literally crap in the air. And it's going to wreak havoc on your respiratory system. You're just, you're going to be breathing it. It's going to be causing your, your white blood cells to fight and, you know, deal with this. And your body's going to be depressed because the immune system's depressed. And, and you're going to feel pretty, uh, pretty depressed. And, and, and you know what? It's just because of the atmosphere. He was right. It's for the atmosphere both literally and figuratively. But I'm grateful for him to saying, for saying that because I, when you do start to feel the grips of depression in that city, um, you're able to attribute it to uh, what you're breathing. But nevertheless, in the wintertime, most of those open sewers are frozen over. And so you're not breathing as many molecules per square centimeter in the air every breath. So your choice, uh, your, your, your chance of, of inhaling and uh, swallowing air shit is minimized. So that's the number two thing. And then the third thing that's really good about being in a war zone in the wintertime is that the enemy also doesn't like fighting in the cold. And so it's used as a time of regrouping, counting supplies, and figuring out new tactics for the springtime. Now, the week before I flew out from Dubai to Afghanistan, there was an attack on the Ariana Hotel. And yeah, they caught everybody off guard. Why? Because everybody thinks in the wintertime, Terrorists are not going to attack. So you get overly confident and you get arrogant. And they got a bunch of expats and um, loyalists. So it's not a tried and true law, but it's a good statistic to kind of hope for and, and be reassured by. So the cold isn't bad all the time. It does provide you some good, you know, maybe a little bit of respite from things. Um, there's stuff there that I'll never forget, like the smells of the kerosene heaters that we used. And you'd have to go and light them with matches. And, and as you'd let this, this kerosene heat up, I would sit Indian style with my blanket over us. Can I say Indian style? Cross-legged. I mean nothing by it, people. Excuse me, but cross-legged with a with a shawl over me, shivering as this thing warmed up and almost burning my fingers on the matches that I would use to light this thing, just so I could get my hands working again. And I would I would smack my fingers together just to get them to work, you know, just so they'd redden up and they would and they would work. It's a tactic I still use if I'm playing guitar outside and I need my fingers to work. You just smack them together like at the edge. Here I'll do it. You just. You're just smacking the ends together. You don't hit the, the palms. And they start to sting, and then they kind of warm up, and they, and they redden up. Um, and I would just sit there just lighting this thing and, and watching the smoke bank down inside these concrete rooms to the point where at some point you go, well, i got to open a window and warm, you know, let this air out, even though it's going to cool down the warmth I've created. And... You don't necessarily want to be by a window in a war zone, ladies and gentlemen. It's not the smartest thing. And although we had uh, curtains on a lot of the door uh, windows, uh, you still don't want to be walking out to those windows. But nevertheless, you'd have to go over there, open it and kind of fan it until you got that baked down smoke out the window. 
and then try and rewarm yourselves. And, and, and this is what we had to do when I first showed up there because we did not have power when I showed up. In fact, the week that I got there during this cold snap, all of the water had frozen over and the power had not been established and made certain to us by the power company. So what we had to find out was, why don't we have power? Was there some issues with our power lines? Was there something going on here? We are freezing our asses off. Well, it turns out you got to talk to the power company and you have to know people at the power company and you have to have money for the people at the power company so that we could buy electricity from them. It's just like anything like in America, but you had to go and speak to somebody and say, here's some money, put the cash on the barrel head, shake hands and say, now we need to have power between ideally 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And they say, I'm sorry, that's not possible. You'd say, well, okay, well, we need it during business hours and we need it through the evening because it's below freezing cold. And they said, well, I'm sorry, that's, that's also not possible. Well, how impossible is that? That's about $10,000 possible. I see. And be it that we didn't have $10,000 to throw the power company. We had to figure out the most tactical hours to have electricity in our home, which meant usually getting it from 10 to 10 and then using the regular heaters up until 10 in the morning. We had to use it during business hours and then we'd go to 10 at night and have it nice and warm. And I think we kind of changed it around week to week to see if we could get some optimal hours because God bless it. It's 4 p 4 a.m. and you have no power and you're freezing cold and you don't want to get up and light a kerosene lighter. All you got is a, a nice blanket. I'm not kidding. We did have nice blankets there. But you are wrapped double fold over these blankets uh, in the fetal position and it was nice and warm I mean, to the point that I'd be sweating in there but my face outside then my nose would be freezing up um, and you know you just you're not going to sleep you're not sleeping until you just you, you learn little ways to cocoon yourself but for the first I think a week and a half or two weeks no power no water no power no water we drank the water that we buy at the store and boy I'll tell you that was an interesting endeavor getting in the van and going out to the store and being six foot two uh, blonde haired green eyed guy in a world of you know five foot six dark haired uh, people that are staring with me with at me with intent to do murderous activities not everybody but that's again my understanding of that world at that time i mean really how i felt until until i started meeting the people that we were helping and and i'll get into that later and i have not met more amiable incredibly compassionate caring people as i did when when i met those people in the in the in those cities in those war zones that we worked with to bring some kind of efficiency and and compassion which they already had but they just need the means to to get that on its feet there um but as i was getting into my car going to the general store to buy um you know non-leavened bread peanut butter and coffee grounds so that i have something at least to warm me and keep me full if we weren't getting any kind of food uh, there's, I would see people as in the intent that they saw me and they were marking me, you know, God, it was so, it was so naive. But the other thing that you got to remember people is that I, I came from California. I thought I was the shiznit, you know, I thought, I thought everybody wanted to, they, they, they needed to interact with me. Like they saw me, they, they, they wanted to harm me when in fact they don't care about me. They have their own fish to fry. And in that world, though, I, I was I was off my rocker. And again, I was scared. I was scared of that world. So so anyway, 
That being said, we were able to get water and supplies at the stores. And then as it started to thaw, we got water. We had no way to heat it, but we did have water. So for those uh, following weeks, you get two red buckets. You'd fill the buckets with water and you'd walk into the shower, concrete, you know, bathroom and um, pour a little water on you from the first bucket, freezing cold, shivering, screaming at yourself. You know how it's so cold, it burns and you would lather yourself up with that maybe get enough in your hair but you knew that if you if you cleaned your hair you'd have to dump it all over your whole body with the second bucket but it's you know eventually you have to do that you know you, you got to clean yourself um there are things that kind of grow in the sweat that do that do cleanse you but you don't know that until you've lived in your sweat for a few days uh, homeless people, I'm sure, know that. Uh, people deployed, soldiers know that. And and um, and we found that out too. But it's nice to clean yourself off. And um, one of the few respites that I had was getting in that bathroom with a couple buckets of ice-cold water, pouring one over you, and you just get that douse. Where I used to get at the football practice after, I'd go and I'd douse myself in cold water and just see how long I could stand it. And you just, but then you dump the water on you, you'd, you, you'd scrub yourself down. And then that second flush, you'd flush it all over you. And you just stand there in the cold and, and dry and towel yourself off and then get back into your room and throw on your sweats and then climb into that bed and that warmth that would hit you. It's like it's like God's holding you in his arms, you know? It's like you're in your mother's uh, grasp. She's holding you. And you're like, oh, this is so good. This is so good. It's nothing that insane. It's nothing, you know, but it is great. It is It is something that you, when you're in that much miserable cold, just that final warmth and being clean and having dry linen to put over you, dry, dry fabric is, is just something where you get in there and the shivers start to go away. And then as they go away, you fall asleep for like 20 minutes or like an hour because it's just without pain, without that gnawing freeze. It's a wonderful thing if you haven't experienced it. It's why people, I'm sure, you know, and I would like to do it too, is why they take swims in the bay. And, you know, that freezing cold that eventually you get used to. And as you come out, that amazing awe of warmth uh, it is, it's hypnotizing. And it is such a serotonin explosion that uh, you do yearn to go back and put yourself through that that pain, that little voluntary pain, again, just so you get that, you get that reward, that, that dump of, of endorphins. Um, I think in many ways, that's why I continue doing this job. It's that I voluntarily put myself in places where I'm uncomfortable, but afterwards, the knowledge that I was uncomfortable there informs my comfortability in the present moment and you're able to appreciate more you know I, I i'm able to appreciate a cup of coffee in the morning when it's cold a nice black rich cup of coffee because i was there and i would just pour coffee grounds into an old mug and fill it with with water that was heated on a campfire or on a fire um on a kerosene heater or, or literally outside on a, in a little fire that we'd get going in the morning. And, and then you'd, you'd be drinking it, just no filter. You just pour grounds into the bottom of a cup and you would drink that down until you started getting grounds in your mouth and kind of, and then, you know, dump it out, clean it out and get another one if you wanted to. 
uh, and 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 or you would be drinking it and you put it down and we had this outside patio and I'd put the cup down <clears throat> and I'd go and look out the windows to kind of see the city, you know, peek through the curtains. And and I got back to my cup of coffee. I went to pick it up and the coffee had not only cooled, but the, the coffee running down the sides had froze the cup to the concrete floor. And it literally, within about a minute and a half, I had to pop it off. It was cold. But I missed that cup of coffee. It's the craziest thing. That world, I missed that alternative dimension that I lived in. I, I missed that world. It's over there now. It's there. But do I want to go there now? I, I, I want portions of it. But I don't want to be there now. And it, it's that thing in your mind where you, you think, do you, do you need this? Do you need a little, you need knowledge? And do you need pain and suffering to inform you of what you have now? To encompass all your brain's wants, desires, and disciplines and abstentions so that you're well-rounded. You, you get, you understand what you have and you're willing to put yourself through more because you know you can take it. And you know, you know at the end of that, it's going to be worth it. You know, or you die. But if you don't, you make it through there. And man, you got a story. No matter how cold it gets, you got that warmth somewhere down the road. So you're willing to put yourself through the shivering and the pain and the, the bone gnawing cold to get some kind of reward. But that reward is, like we talk about, it's an enlightenment. It's an enlightenment. I don't know if there's anything better. I might just go out right now and jump in a pool. I mean, kick a heater on real quick, you know? After all, if you got it, Thank you.